Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. My name is Adam Jones. We just interviewed Chris Kresser. Hey, what a legend. We initially heard he did a couple of episodes with Joe Rogan uh, and we loved his stuff. A little bit of conspiracy, but some real good health stuff, which mm. we love. Mate, yeah. I'd say for me, he's probably my number one source on health mm-hmm. from, you know, after reading his book and from what I hear from other friends of mine yeah. who love his stuff as well. So in this interview, we talk about sleep, big pharma, the gut, fat, yeah. a bit about spirituality and some yeah. of the individual actions that everyone can take yeah. to um, you know, get your health in order. Mate, I liked right at the end, uh, the potato hack, he calls it. I'm yeah. getting on it. I think it's good shit. Yeah. Get on it, man. Chris Cresser. The Crest man. Crest. Healthcare is going to reach something like forty-seven trillion dollars by twenty thirty. So, I guess just to start off, um, you know, what, what's actually what's going on in the world for with this, this ridiculous trend? Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's more than the GDP of the six largest economies in the world. Just to put that in perspective, I mean, that's such a big number; it's hard to even get your head around it. Most people have no idea how to even conceive of one trillion dollars, much less forty-seven trillion. Crazy. Um, so yeah, I mean that's that we're we're talking about like bankruptcy on a global scale, and um, you know it, the the reason for that is that chronic disease is uh, incredibly difficult to treat using our conventional system. It lasts often for a lifetime, um, and uh, the the way that our healthcare or rather sick care or disease management system is set up is is just woefully inadequate for for dealing with it i mean it's really fantastic if you get hit by a car or you you know you you have some kind of injury or you need to get a colonoscopy or some other kind of procedure like that conventional medicine is fantastic and you know we should be grateful for all of the advances that we've had over the years you know antibiotics and you know uh, more sanitary conditions in the operating room that prevent infections and uh, you know, pretty remarkable technologies that that ha- allow us to do things like reattach limbs and mm. um, you know do organ transplants, and it's amazing, it's incredible, and we and we should be grateful for that. But um, trying to use those same methodologies that were were really designed to treat acute emergency problems to address chronic disease is a bit like you know, using a hammer to screw in a screw. Mm. It's just, it's, mm. the, it's not a, you know, it's the wrong tool for the job. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think I read uh, either in the book or in the, the Joe Rogan episodes uh, you did, which we love that you said like, as you said, this chronic stuff, you know, someone gets diabetes, it's something like $14,000 a year mm-hmm. to treat. And as you said, that could go on for 40, 50 years. Uh, whereas the the cure uh, or just not or preventing it in the first place uh, is a lot, a lot cheaper than $14,000 a year. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, now the average age of people being diagnosed with diabetes is dropping every year. Used to be unheard of for, ki- for a kid to be diagnosed with diabetes, much less, um, you know, an adolescent. And, and um, now, well, we have eight-year-olds that are being diagnosed with diabetes. We have uh, 20% of adolescents, at least in the U.S. I'm not sure of the numbers in Australia, but I don't. I, I doubt they're very different. Mm. Um, you know, about 20% of uh, of adolescents, kids are obese, not just overweight, obese. That's, that's so, 
You know, it's crazy. It's so unnatural. That's obviously not normal for human beings. And the problem with that, as you pointed out, is these, these expenditures, which are already astronomical and already bringing our system to its knees, are going to be extended now for, you know, another decade, another two decades, or even another three decades. And there's just no way, if you do that math, $14,000 times, you know, 60 or 70 years, that's a million dollars just for one disease and one patient's mm. lifetime. And that's how you get very quickly to that $50 trillion number that yeah. we were talking about before. Crazy. Yeah, it seems like a lot of our economies are going to drown. Um, Today, so it's it's what it's like uh, nine a.m. in in on a Sunday. Today, I'm going to see my yeah. granddad, um, have lunch with him. And not long ago, I remember him being this you know powerful man. He was played football for Chelsea and all this kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. he's been hit with Alzheimer's at the moment. Um, mm. So I'd love to know where where does this disease come from? Because it seems like everyone in their old age kind of hits it. And I I try and sell kind of health principles on on some people i know and they say alzheimer's they just didn't have a label for it back in the day like you know when they were Mm -hmm. younger is this the case or is it actual proof that alzheimer's is growing and and it it seems to be kind of expected at the moment but it's really is a horrible disease and see you know somebody you still know you love forget your name when you and and things like that it's it's really hard oh it's devastating i i think i read a statistic at some point that most people would rather die in a, in a shark attack than Alzheimer's, from Jeez. Alzheimer's, which is pretty vivid, you know. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, and and I would I would put myself on that list for sure. Um, mm. You know, like it's devastating disease for the people who are suffering from it, but even more than that for their families, as you as you know. Mm. Um, it's really hard on people around the person who's suffering from that condition and. Um, you know, when they, they want to study how stress affects people, they study caregivers of Alzheimer's patients. Mm-hmm. That's, that's pretty common in the research literature. But to your question, um, no, it, it's definitely not a, just a normal thing that's always been going on that now has a name and that's been more recognized. That's been debunked. Uh, there definitely is an increase in the incidence of it. A pretty alarming increase, as with many other chronic diseases like autism, for example. Mm. And uh, if you look at hunter-gatherer populations, that those few that still exist in other parts of the world, like the Simane, for example, in Bolivia, they're a subsistence farming hunter-gatherer population that's largely maintained their traditional diet and lifestyle. They have an even even higher incidence of APO, APOE4 polymorphisms, that the ones that increase your susceptibility to Alzheimer's, at least in the West. Mm. But their incidence of Alzheimer's is far, far lower than ours is uh, today. So so that already shoots a hole in the theory that it's just gene, it's it's just bad luck. You know, mm. if you have bad genes, you're gonna get it. It doesn't matter what you do or don't do, <laughs> which is basically what doctors are telling patients now. Um, if that were true, then we would see everybody in the Simone population getting Alzheimer's because they have a very high prevalence of this genetic uh, mutation, but that doesn't happen. So that tells us there's something in our diet, something in our environment, something in our behavior that is increasing this risk. Um, You know, you could look at that as bad news, but I look at that as good news because that means there's actually something that we can do to prevent it and maybe even reverse it once, once it started. Uh, Do you guys, have you heard of Dale Bredesen's book on Alzheimer's? I have not. Yeah, so I 
you'll probably be going to buy this right after I tell yeah, you about yeah, it. Totally because uh, So um, he is a doctor who has spent his entire career treating you know, and studying Alzheimer's uh, from a conventional perspective. He was very conventional um, doctor and was, you know, working in the lab, but and also working with patients at UCLA, you know, uh, very prestigious institutions, well-recognized around the world for his research in the conventional approach. But after, you know, two decades of working that way and just feeling like he was banging his head up against a brick wall and getting nowhere, he, he started to question whether this approach of just trying to find a drug that would magically erase the condition was the right way to go about it and mm -hmm. he started to also think about things from an ancestral perspective like hey populations like the simane like we just talked about they don't get alzheimer's so they have the same genes they don't get it there must be something going on in the environment anyways he basically came to a functional medicine approach to alzheimer's on his own without knowing even that there was such a thing as functional medicine. Mm -hmm. And then he, he started um, <clears throat> treating Alzheimer, diagnosing and treating Alzheimer's by looking at what, what could be the underlying causes and what happens if we actually address those causes to people get better. Mm -hmm. And the answer was unequivocally yes. And so he wrote a book, just came out in August uh, in the US at least. I'm not sure if it's available over where you guys are. But it's called The End of Alzheimer's, uh, the first program to prevent and reverse cognitive decline. And he shares about all of his experience working with patients from this new perspective and how much more um, powerful and effective it is and how much more hopeful it is. Because, you know, most people when they're diagnosed with Alzheimer's, it's just like, oh, pack it up, you know, yeah, just totally. that, that's, that's it. it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's like a lot of our diseases. We'll just go straight to the to the, the doctor and you, like you say in the book it's like a, a passive thing so we so we just look for the doctor for the solution and then we've only got 10 minutes with them so then pretty much right. that's the only enough time to just give us a prescription a drug and yeah. you know it's a band-aid yeah. and and off we go so um, yeah. I'm keen to hear a little bit about about um, big pharma and the incentive structure at the moment because they so the way it's set up you say in the book it's it's you know they're not inclined to or they're not going to um, win if we actually get healthier they get paid more if if we just you know have a decline of, of health yeah i mean that's it's a bigger problem here than it is uh in, in australia um, not to say that it isn't an issue there but you know we along with your neighbors in new zealand are the only two countries in the world that allow direct to consumer drug advertising mm -hmm. you know so you can open open a magazine here and you see like, you know, the first 10 pages are like full, full page spread <laughs> advertisements for Viagra or, you know, whatever other drug that they're selling. And then what happens is you get patients going into the doctor saying, I want that drug, even when it's not appropriate for their condition. And doctors often end up prescribing it because they just get worn down. So we have a, a lot of weird stuff here in the US where the pharmaceutical companies have a lot more influence than they need to or should compared to other countries in the world, even you know other industrialized countries. And the result of that is that um, big you know big big pharma has uh, an incredible amount of sway over decisions that are made you know from a public policy perspective. They spend uh, let me let me see if I remember the number off the top of my head. Two hundred and fifty million dollars a year lobbying Congress 
And to put that in perspective, uh, the gun lobby, which gets a lot of attention, you know, in, in the in the U.S., the the NRA mm. and aso- other associated organizations that are that are um, you know lobbying for gun rights, they spend only ten million dollars. What? So, <laughs> yeah, the, the big pharma is spending twenty five times more Jeez. than the gun lobby um, to make sure that legislation that is favorable to them gets passed. And an example of a recent example of this is that. Um, I'm sure you've heard of the opiate uh, epidemic here in the U.S. where um, opiate addiction is just really on the rise. It's killing, you know, uh, a really uh, sad, extremely devastating number of people all across the U.S., but particularly in the Midwest. And um, there was a ph- there's there are pharmacies in in small towns like in West Virginia that are ordering uh, a, a, an unbelievable number of opiate pills that's you know that they have a population of like 10,000 people and they're ordering you know hundreds of thousands of opiate pills and it's very clear what's happening right that you know people are just doctors are are getting giving out prescriptions more than they should you know there's some probably unethical doctors that are doing it for money Mm -hmm. and there was a movement to pass legislation that would make that impossible you know that that would regulate more the prescription of opiates so that pe- we could save some lives and keep people from getting addicted to these drugs. And the, the pharmaceutical lobby basically blocked that. You know, they, oh, yeah. they uh, you know, did what they do and magically that bill disappeared. <laughs> and there was, you know, there, was, there was no justification for that. You know, there's no uh, viable reason that that, that that should have been blocked other than money. And, and that's... Uh, you know, that's one of the biggest obstacles we face to the plan that I laid out in the book, because these are deeply entrenched financial interests, um, you know, that the pharmaceutical industry is second only to the oil industry in the U.S. in terms of the profit, the amount of profit they make each year. So um, they're not going to just roll over and play dead, yep, you know, um, and, and give that up. But at the same time, the fact that in Australia and in the UK and in Scandinavia and many other industrialized, you know, f- countries around the world have don't have uh, big pharma doesn't have that influence, um, and and ultimately the people do make the laws. So you know, the, if there's enough groundswell of understanding and and outcry and um, outrage uh, and awareness is raised to a certain level, I think we can make changes that will make a difference. Nice. That's phenomenal. Um, we've read a, a, bu- in a, a bunch of the books that we've done, talks about Pfizer and stuff. And one of the interviews, a guy we did talked, uh, it's called The Click Moment, a dude named Franz Johansson. He talked about how uh, it's about being open to randomness and using that for business. And their randomness mm-hmm. was that they had this pill for lowering blood pressure. Turns out it gave people boners, um, which was obviously <laughs> yeah, a good thing. I, but I liked mm-hmm. a, um, a different take on it that I heard you talking about was that they actually then went and invented a disease. They hired an advertising yeah. agent to create yeah. erectile dysfunction that then people thought, yeah, yeah I, need a, I need a pill for that. Yeah, this is a phenomenon called disease mongering. Um, and there are actually studies about it. You can Google it. Um, it's a, it's, it's a term. The definition is that the practice of widening the diagnostic boundaries of illnesses and aggressively promoting their public awareness in order to expand the markets for treatment. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, so yeah, and there are books written on it. I've read several papers on it. And, uh, you know, as I was talking with Joe Rogan about it, 
the basically about 20 years ago, um, and there's even a CEO from Merck that's quoted publicly saying this, but they, they realized that the market for selling drugs was getting saturated because they had produced all, you know, many of the drugs for sicknesses that they could produce. And they realized that they were kind of reaching the limit of that. I mean, certainly there would be new sicknesses and new drugs, but they, they kind of understood that they, there wouldn't be a game changing increase in revenue unless they figured out how to sell drugs to healthy people <laughs> because, you know, there's way more healthy people than there are sick people, or at least, you know, I'm using air quotes for healthy, <laughs> but you know, yeah. pe people who aren't taking drugs for chronic illness. Uh, and so the, the key was to, to break into this new market. It's almost the equivalent of like Google going to China or something, you know, all yeah. of a sudden there's billions of people that you can sell to that you weren't selling to before. But, you know, healthy people don't think they need to take drugs, right? Mm. They're healthy. Why would they take a drug? So the, the way that you can, the way that you answer that question is to create new conditions that, and then make healthy people believe that they're suffering from them. And then you can <laughs> sell drugs for those conditions. And so uh, erectile dysfunction is um, one of the most notable examples of disease mongering. Another um example is uh, ADHD and ADD. Mm. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't legitimate symptoms um, of ADHD and ADD. And that, of course, it also doesn't mean that people don't suffer from erectile dysfunction. Mm. But the lines start to blur. You start to, mm. you know, let's take a child, for example, who is just a high energy kid who's really precocious and smart and is in school and is bored out of yeah. his brain because it's not challenging him. It's not what he's interested in doing. And he's being asked to sit in a, in a row of desks, you know, and like as soon as he gets interested in something, the bell rings and he has to get up and go to the next thing just because somebody tells him, mm. you know, that's a totally artificial system. Mm. And if a kid doesn't fit into that, he's diagnosed with ADHD, you know, like that's the part that's disease mongering that, mm -hmm. that, that may be a normal response to that kind of system for a kid like that, but it's turned into a pathology. So there, there are lots of other examples, but they've been very successful. And they, like you said, um, they do hire advertising agencies to create these conditions and then market them to the public. That's, that's absolutely crazy. Absolutely crazy. Um, one of the things you talked about uh, a lot is returning to an ancestral way of uh, eating and, and lifestyle. And I like that you talked about paleo, which is probably a good way to summarize it, but it's also got a lot of negative stigma attached yeah. to it. Uh, and people probably have met someone who's ramming some paleo something something down their throat <clears> um, <laughs> can, <laughs> as, I, as I get a yeah. bit of a paleo stuck in my throat yeah. now. Um, <clears throat> can you uh, tell us your version of paleo and what, what it means to live ancestrally and eat ancestrally? Yeah, it's pretty simple really. Um, and it, it's, it's just that all, all organisms and animals on the planet evolved in a certain environment and, and they're adapted to survive and thrive in that environment. And when, the environment changes faster than their than their genes or their biology can adapt. You get a mismatch, mm. and that mismatch is the fundamental cause of all human disease, uh, and all disease in any animal. So, for just again to use an example, cats are carnivores in nature. They only eat meat. Mm. They don't eat salads. <laughs> they don't eat. 
They don't eat grain-based kibble. They eat meat. That's <laughs> yeah. what their digestive tract is designed for. That's the environment they evolved in. And if you feed a cat kibble, you know, cat food from the pet food store that has grains and other stuff in it, they will survive, but they won't thrive because mm. their digestive system is not adapted for that. And when you go in now to a pet food store, at least in the States, all of the premium cat food is meat only or raw meat, you know, because veterinarians have, have realized this and um, they know that cats will be healthy if they're eating a species appropriate diet is one way to think about it. So what is, you know, what is the human species appropriate diet? How do we figure that out? Well, we look at groups of humans that are still living the tra their traditional lifestyle, like the Simane that I mentioned before, but you also have the Hadza um, in Africa, which are often considered to be the last really truly remaining hunter-gatherer culture in the world. You have the Kitaba, which are closer to you guys in the South Pacific. You've got the uh, people in the um, Tukasenta and the Papua New Guinea Highlands, which also near you. You've got uh, the Ache in Paraguay. Um, so you've got these groups of people all around the world. And without exception, they ate some combination of meat and fish, fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds, and lots of different starchy plants. Um, it varied from place to place. You know, sometimes they ate more fat, sometimes they ate less fat, uh, you know, more protein, less protein. But what they weren't eating was cheese doodles, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, cookies, cakes, uh, candy, pizza, chicken nuggets, yep. um, yeah. you know, uh, bread, mm. all of the foods that now make up the majority of calories in the American diet. But it's not just about diet. It's also about things like physical activity, sleep, exposure to light, stress. And when you look at these traditional cultures, they didn't sit for long periods. They're naturally active throughout the day. They lived in, in sync with the, the natural rhythms of light and dark. They weren't exposed to artificial light and iPads and screens all the time. They, um, they got seven to nine hours of sleep on average each night. They lived in close-knit tribal and social groups. And this is basically the natural, one way to think of it is like the natural human operating system, mm. you know, and that's just like a computer requires a certain kind of operating system, the hardware of the computer, the hardware of our bodies, which is our genes, um, requires a certain kind of operating system yeah. to, to run properly. And if you try to install Windows on a Mac, it's not going to go well. And that's basically what's happened today in our industrialized world. Oh, totally. Um, for myself and all the listeners, we've probably have installed a, um, Windows on a Mac. Yeah. So assuming that we've probably lived you know, 20, 30, 40 years or whatever, eating the wrong stuff, eating chicken nuggets, drinking beer and eating cheese or yeah. whatever, that kind of stuff. Say, and for me fish last year- Fish and chips, right? Fish and chips, yeah. pies if you're in Australia. Pies, yeah. yeah. I definitely I remember my pies. For me, last year was antibiotics as well. And I think in your story, you um, had a big dose of antib antibiotics in your 20s also. So what's, yeah. um, what's uh, you know, the, some of the, the, the easiest or lowest hanging fruit to um, improve our health again? Well, going back to you know, studying traditional peoples and, and finding the common threads uh, in all of their diets, no matter where they were in the world, Virtually all 
traditional peoples ate some form of fermented foods. So these would be things like sauerkraut or later once dairy started, you know, dairy consumption started, kefir or yogurt, uh, beet kvass, um, you know, kombucha, all kinds of different fermented foods and beverages, kimchi and Korea and Asian food. And these, uh, you know, they didn't know anything about bacteria or microbes or uh, they just through process of trial and error and experimentation figured out that these foods were healthy and they were, you know, and they, they, they made them feel better. And also fermentation was the only way to store foods without refrigeration. So um, eating fermented food, I think, is a really it's something that's fallen out of favor in, in Western culture, but it's it's one of the easiest things that you can do to promote your gut health, especially after you've taken a lot of antibiotics. Mm. Uh, but but not just that, also eating fermentable fiber. So um, one thing that uh, that we've come to understand over the last ten or twenty years is that fiber is crucial um, for not for us per se, but for the bacteria that live in our gut because fiber is food for our for for those bacteria. So by definition, fiber is is a type of carbohydrate that humans can't absorb but that the bacteria living in our gut can. And so one way to think about it is with each food you put in your, each bite of food you put in your mouth, you ask yourself the question, how, how will this nourish me and how will it nourish the bacteria in my gut? And, and if, you know, ideally the best kinds of foods are the foods that are going to do both. You know, they're going to nourish you and they're going to nourish the bacteria in your gut. So eating fermented, uh, fermented foods, Eating fermentable fibers, those are mostly found in lots of different fruit, fresh fruits and vegetables, starchy plants, like I mentioned before, um, onions, uh, uh, garlic, leeks, Jerusalem artichokes, um, there's mushrooms, there are a lot of different kinds of foods that have different types of fibers, um, and we want to eat as wide a variety of these as we can. Cool. Sorry, can I quickly jump? I'm glad to hear we've been on a kombucha kick the last three or four weeks. I'm glad to hear we were worried it was just good marketing, but I'm glad to hear that maybe, <laughs> maybe there's something to it. But yeah, sorry. I mean, I don't think it's as therapeutic as like sauerkraut or um, you know beet kvass or something like that. But I think it's I think it's beneficial overall as long as you don't overdo it because kombucha has sugar, some sugar in it, right? Mm-hmm. Not not a lot. Um, certainly not like a drinking a big gulp, but it's. Yeah. Um, you know, I've seen people that, that are, you know, they're like, oh, I'm drinking kombucha. Is that good for me? And I was like, how much are you drink? And they're like, five a day. I'm like, no, that's, that's not good for you. <laughs> so, and what about, yeah. what about uh, probiotics? Is that, uh, we're probably just sound like lazy idiots just yeah. trying to take the easy <laughs> take, way out. Take a no, that's for a lot fine. Of people, um, do pro- probiotics actually work and taking supplements, you know, those kind of supplements, if, if, because a lot of those foods you mentioned there, I've never even heard of. And if I walk through a grocery yeah. store, I wouldn't even know what any of this looks like. So, Well, not, if you're in Byron Bay, you might. Yeah, but, <laughs> um, um, yeah so probiotics, the problem is it's kind of like saying, is, is beer good? You know, mm-hmm. like, does, does beer taste good? Well, there's a, there's a big difference, you know, yeah. between uh, this beer and that beer. And, um, you know, everyone's got their ideas about which are better and, and which aren't, but, um, there, there's just a huge quality difference. And a lot of products on the market don't have what they say they have in them. And they're not as effective as they should be for that reason. Um, the other issue, at least for me is that, 
I know that you guys, you know, uh, I used to treat patients from all over the world. I don't accept patients internationally anymore, but when I did and I had patients from Australia, a lot of the products that I recommended from here were not available there. So it's a little harder for me to make specific recommendations. But, um, and it's one of the reasons I come back to fermented foods because, um, number one, they're cheaper. Mm -hmm. Number two, they actually tend to have many, much more probiotic organisms in them, you know, like a glass of kefir, for example, um, has trillions of microorganisms versus billions or maybe hundreds of billions in some of the more powerful probiotics. And number three, you can be relatively sure that they have what, you know, what, they, what they're supposed to have in them, which is not the case for commercial probiotics. Having said all that, Yes, there are lots of probiotics that can be very effective. We, I use them with, my, you know, with my patients every day in my practice, and um, you know, I recommend them for people who want to maintain good gut health. Uh, I guess I would say, um, you know, choosing uh, species that have been well studied and brands that are reputable rather than just the cheapest thing that's available in the market. Um, is a really good idea because there's just a lot of false claims um, that are being made about them. Nice. In, in general, I heard you say uh, a quote, uh, anyone trying to be healthy and lean is fighting an upstream battle. And you, you talked about how the, the layouts of grocery stores uh, and things like that and advertising and uh, mm -hmm. everyone trying to get us to eat crap essentially. Um, yeah. So what are some of the, the well, ways that I guess... it's even deeper than that because... Um, Human beings evolved in an environment of food scarcity. Mm. So what that means is our entire operating system, again, um, is set up to prevent us from starving because that was the main threat for a vast majority of human history. It still is in many parts of the world, right? You know, we're, we're fortunate. We live in the industrialized world. Food abundance is a bigger problem for us now. But in most places in history and even still today, Food scarcity is the biggest problem. So we have all of these mechanisms in our brain to protect us against starvation. So we seek out highly rewarding calorie-dense foods because from an evolutionary perspective, the people who are most successful at bulking up and eating those calorie-dense foods would be the ones who would be most likely to survive a famine and you know pass their genes on to the next generation. So that's all well and good when you're living in an environment of food scarcity, but it backfires on us when you've got, you know, a supermarket on every corner or a, you know, pie shop or fish and chips <laughs> shop and, you know, uh, a liquor store on every corner like that, that, that's, that's a, a horrible setup because it, it, uh, it's a it's a perfect storm for our brains, which are designed to seek out those rewarding foods. And so going against that hardwired genetic programming is very difficult. It's not, you know, I, I often tell my patients who are struggling, it's it's not about like you're weak, you don't have willpower. You have to understand that you're fighting against survival mechanisms. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's yeah. for your body thinks that it's going to starve. You know, yeah. that's that's the level that you're up against. And of course you're not, but you're your you know, you're you're this is a deeper thing. This is like limbic system lizard brain kind of stuff. It's not like at the level of conscious thought. Yeah. So um, what that means is we have to be very smart about how we set up our environment, our food environment. Um, for example, 
don't keep a bag of potato chips in your cupboard because mm. if you get home from work and you're stressed out uh, and you're tired and you're hungry and that bag of potato chips is in there, what's going to happen? Yeah. <laughs> you're going to open it up. You're going to start looking at your iPhone or your pa- iPad and you're going to be eating those things. And before you know it, they're going to be gone because yeah. they are actually designed to get you to eat all of them. And they, <laughs> these, these, these companies have food scientists that understand all of the brain mechanisms that, that lead to consumption of food. And they make sure that their food, their packaged foods hit every single one mm. of those buttons that's going to make you overeat. Yeah. And that's what they're paid to do. So, you know, it's not a conspiracy. It's just the way things work. And so when you understand the way things work, you can actually set your life up in a way that counters that. Yeah. You'd think with so much info, they could use it for good, not evil. But obviously not. They just want you to eat more chips. Yeah. They could. They yeah. could. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, again, I don't think this is a conspiracy. I think that food companies are, they're publicly held corporations. They're Mm -hmm. set up in capitalist society. They're set Mm -hmm. up to make money and reward their shareholders. And how do they do that? By selling more products. I mean, it's, Mm -hmm. it's just absolutely without any judgment about what, whether the system is good or bad, it's the system that we have and it's operating the way that it should from that perspective. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, do you think, um, are you optimistic that some of the Mm -hmm incentives or some of the profits might be found in the more healthy options for big pharma and for big food so eventually you know as we said it starts 47 trillion dollars in healthcare by 2030 surely they can get profits from um you know choosing the the adapt framework that you propose in the book yeah i think um that's a it's a pretty complex topic and it does actually vary a bit from country to country. So the answer I might give you for the U.S. is a little bit different perhaps than for Australia and the U.K. Um, I think you can take a glass half full or a glass empty approach to this depending on what kind of person you are and you know whether you're an optimist or a pessimist. <laughs> the optimistic answer is that we will see the writing on the wall, you know, we'll, we'll will raise awareness about these statistics that, you know, $47 trillion in healthcare expenditures, one in two Americans with chronic disease, one in four with multiple chronic diseases. Mm. Today's, today's kids being the first generation that are expected to actually live shorter lifespans than their mm. parents, which is just heartbreaking. You know, I have a six-year-old daughter. Um, you know, the, the optimistic perspective view is that we'll, we'll see how, that we're heading, uh, you know, toward a cliff and we will change course, you know, through um, changes to our medical paradigm, changes to how we deliver care, changes to public policy, and we'll avert that catastrophe. Okay, so there's that. The glass half empty perspective is that we will continue to do exactly what we're doing now and will the healthcare system will continue to buckle under that pre- the bur- the growing burden of chronic disease i mean it's already in a very precarious position here in the us um, and as more and more people acquire and develop chronic disease it'll place a greater and greater burden on the system and it will fall apart yeah. it will actually it will actually um, uh, just completely fall apart and it will become blatantly apparent at that part at that point that we cannot go on with business as usual as we have been before and then at that time we'll finally have the political will 
um, to make the changes that need to be made because we'll realize that it's truly a matter of the survival of our species and the survival of our country as a distinct government entity, you know? Mm. So we're not just talking about individual health here. Like, it's not just about me getting my beach body or, you know, like dealing with a chronic illness. For me, it's about the survival of governments, you know, the survival of states as we know them. It's about the survival of our species, perhaps. Like, we're seeing alarming declines in sperm count in males over the past 20 years. And, and you know, if we can't procreate as a species, that's then that's, that, that's <laughs> game over. Nothing yeah. else matters. So I, I want to emphasize the seriousness of this problem. It's, a, it's not just an individual mm-hmm. problem. It's a social and even species-wide problem and challenge that we're facing. Yeah, that's powerful stuff. I hope, you, I hope it is the, that we realize before it's too late, um, before it's a necessity. Um, but I don't know. It's a, I'm holding knows, out for yeah. that. I mean, I, I wrote the, that's why I wrote the book. Yeah, um, exactly. Because I still have some hope that that will happen and I want to be a part of that change. Hmm. And I do believe that we'll get there one way or the other. I just hope it will be a lot less painful to take the proactive route. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a lot less pain and suffering in that. Um, and there's already so much as it is that I would hate to see more added. Um, at the yeah. same time, if you're a student of history, it's hard <laughs> yeah. to truly believe that things will change as quickly as they do need to change in order mm. for us to turn around the ship. But all we can do is try. Yeah. Nice. I've got one cheeky little left fielder before we ask you about the, some of the books on the shelf behind you and, and where people could find you and stuff. Um, I, you, you talked about the potato hack on Joe Rogan. Yeah. I don't know if you, you probably uh, know the uh, magician Penn Jillette, how he wrote a book about how he lost 100 pounds. He ate just potatoes for a month to sort of break the, all the bad habits that he developed about uh, yeah. eating and stuff. Uh, is, is the potato hack something you recommend and what are some of the, the warnings or uh, cautions around that? It's pretty legit. I mean, <laughs> I'm the, funny crack thing, this week. <laughs> the funny thing is that I was in after I shortly after I was on Rogan, I went down to Mexico to do some surfing and for my, you know, annual uh, I do twice a year. I do a 10 day digital detox where I go completely off the grid. And so mm-hmm. we went down to Baja and then I came back and I got back online and I saw that almost my entire company, uh, you know, I have, we have uh, the clinic and then also my online training business about, you know, 20 employees between the two companies and something like, you know, literally like 15 of people were on the potato hack and, you know, <laughs> several had lost like 10 pounds in 20 days and, um, you know, it, just having incredible results. So it, it definitely works and it can often work when nothing else works. And there are a lot of reasons for that. You know, we talked before about how our, assist, our, our brain is hardwired to seek out really rewarding calorie-dense foods with a lot of variety. All of those things are, mm. the, are the things that make us eat more than we actually need to to satisfy our hunger. When you eat plain potatoes, you're short-circuiting all of those mechanisms. Like, and again, to, to use an example, imagine two plates of food next to each other. On one, you have just steamed potatoes with no salt, no fat, nothing, just steamed white potato. And on the other, you've got potato chips, yeah. you know? Yeah. Goes without saying that <laughs> for, the, for most people, for the potato, they're just going to eat as much, only as much as they need to satisfy yeah. their hunger. 
not a bite more. Yeah. <laughs> and then, but the potato chips, even if you've already had a full meal, a lot of people will just eat eat the whole plate of the potato chips because oh, that's really? that's just how it goes. And so, but the other thing is when you cook the potatoes and cool them, which most people do, they like when they're doing this diet, they, they eat, they make a huge batch of potatoes on Sunday and then they just, you know, eat, eat those throughout the week, put them in the fridge, heat them back up. Maybe when you do that, resistant starch forms and resistant starch is a fiber that feeds our beneficial gut bacteria. So, uh, I think the other reason that the potato hack works is it's like a gut reset. Mm. And we know that the gut of course is really important in terms of weight regulation. So, um, it's legit. It works. It works when nothing else will work. If you do it, um, and you're going to do it over an extended period of time, taking a high quality multivitamin is probably a good idea. Um, you know, there, I think there are strategies for doing it dif- different ways that might make more sense. Like there's a version called potatoes by day where you just eat potatoes for breakfast and lunch. And then you have a normal dinner, you know, with your family or your girlfriend or your boyfriend or, you know, so that way you can have kind of a more normal mm-hmm. social existence in the evenings. And, and then just during the day when you're busy and you don't have to w- want to worry about food, you just eat the potatoes. And, yeah. and that's a good way of doing it. Another way of doing it is just doing like two days a week, you know, mm-hmm. two, three days a week. You do Monday and Tuesday or something. And, um, you know, you could expect for some people to, to lose anywhere between a quarter of a pound and a half a pound per day of doing the potato diet. So if you do the potato diet two days a week, then, you know, if you're on the top end of that scale, you might lose a pound a week. And so if you did it over a year, you could lose uh, 50 pounds, which yeah. is pretty significant. So it doesn't have to be super fast and concentrated. You can spread it out and just make it more sustainable. That's mm. huge. Get on it, actually. Um, <laughs> yeah, so you've got, so you got, uh, you got a huge bookcase behind you with a bunch of books. Um, what books have been influential on your career or um, and your life, I guess, and your work? Uh, yeah, you know, mostly books that are not about health, actually. Nice. Um, I would nice. say, uh, I mean, I, I read very few health books. I mostly read studies, you know, the actual, the original studies. Um, uh, I have several RSS feeds. I don't know if people even know what those are anymore. <laughs> I'm probably giving away my age here, but um, basically it's a way of getting alerted when new s- studies are published on topics that I'm interested in. And so I have, you know, I read a ton of original research and then I read some blogs that you, you guys probably haven't even heard of that are just from scientists and researchers that I know in the community that write about their research. That's mostly how I get my health uh, education in, more so than popular books. But um, I read pretty widely across a lot of different genres. Um, uh, you know, right now I am reading uh, Leonardo da Vinci's mm. biography. Um, he, yeah, by Walter Isaacson, which is an incredible He's just an incredibly incredible innovator, inventor, dreamer. Um, I read Einstein's biography shortly before that. Same thing be said about him. I'm, I'm reading a book called Irresistible about the rise of addictive technologies like the internet and smartphones, which is terrifying. <laughs> and, um, you know, frankly, it's 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 affecting me probably more than just about any other book I've read recently. 
I read books on cosmology. I, I, re I recently read Brian Greene's um, book about the multiverse, um, seven different theories about the, the multiverse. Um, I read books about physics and astrophysics, um, poetry, you know, just a whole, mostly nonfiction, occasionally some fiction. And I find that um, reading across those different genres really makes me think about things in a different way and opens my mind to uh, other possibilities that I might not be thinking about if I was, you know, just reading health books or, nice. or just reading fiction. That's awesome. I think that's a good recommendation. There's a, a few books to add to our, our list off the back of that. Um, we're, heading yeah. to, we're heading to Indonesia soon, so we're going to try and avoid that 10-year yeah, disease. Don't, don't <laughs> Lake no. You can go there. Just don't just just keep, you know keep your fingers crossed <laughs> that was it was it was an unusual situation but i'm sure you guys have heard of plenty of people aussies getting sick in indonesia oh, for sure. um, thanks so much for your time it was phenomenal whereabouts can people find uh, more about you and the work you're doing and the the revolution that's that you're building so my my main website is chriscrosser.com and that that's where we've, i've got a ton of free ebooks and articles about you know maintaining your individual health, treating chronic disease, optimizing your, your lifespan, your, your performance. Um, for practitioners that are interested in training in this approach that we've been talking about today, um, addressing the root cause of disease rather than just suppressing symptoms and putting Band-Aids on it, um, CresserInstitute.com is my training organization. And we have a program for licensed clinicians like medical doctors and um, naturopathic physicians, nurse practitioners, etc. Um, we actually have had a, a few Australian physicians go through the program, which is great. Um, and then next year, I'm launching a health coach training program, actually, because I believe that health coaches are going to be a crucial part of how we uh, address chronic disease. Because as I said before, chronic disease is basically a diet, lifestyle, behavior problem. And uh, a mismatch between our diet and lifestyle and behavior and our and our genes and our biology. And so the best people really to address that would be health coaches. Uh, there'll never be enough doctors to address it and they don't have time to do it. So we can train health coaches pretty quickly to, to, to do that. So that's CresserInstitute.com. And then my book is um, at UnconventionalMedicineBook.com. And you can actually download the first three chapters for free. We have been working on a document for a while and it's our top 50 books of all time and it's ready. That's it. You can grab our top 50 books where we've ranked our favorite and most impactful books that we've read so far and, you know, a bit of a spiel on each one and you can grab a copy for yourself whilst you're in there and it's a phenomenal document, I reckon. Most of the books we haven't uh, reviewed yet, so I reckon your reading list will be popped up by a few after reading that one. Exactly, man. We won't give away uh, too many spoilers, but there's some absolute juggernauts in that top 50, as you would expect. Yeah. Head to, to whatyouwillearn.com slash top 50 and you can download that, uh, that report of the top 50 books of all time, 2018 free. version. All free.